0: I'd like to share with you that Bill Hoff is serving uh, our Presbytery of uh, Saint Augustine by moderating a church meeting about the possible dissolution of their pastor at Fleming Island Presbyterian Church. Please keep Bill and that church in your prayers. And as well, Susan Humes and Rebecca Langer and I will be leaving this coming next Saturday, this coming Saturday, for a mission trip to Haiti, to return on Wednesday. Uh, we would uh, appreciate your prayers for that as well. This is what's normally known as Low Sunday. And I have to say the crowd's actually better than I expected on the day, uh, Sunday after Easter. Uh, the text that comes to us oftentimes is the one I'm reading today from the Gospel According to John. We call it the story of Doubting Thomas, Uh, Like Judas, uh, Thomas, I think, has probably gotten more of a bum rap than he deserves. uh, And I think it would behoove us to listen to this text carefully as I read it to see maybe there's more going on here than just the doubt of Thomas uh, to hold us accountable. It appears from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 19 through 29. When it was evening on that day, that is the first day of the week, that first Easter, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet who have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you heard, but I find it interesting that it was not just Thomas, doubting Thomas, who I think has been unfairly labeled, who needed to see the hands, the wounded hands of Jesus and And the wound in Jesus' side, the disciples too, when Jesus first came to them, Jesus said, peace be with you, and then he showed them his hands and his side. And at that point, the text says, they recognized him. They all needed it. That's why the first words of Jesus to those disciples as well as to us in the midst of anguish and fear and grief are these, peace, Be with you. And while that could have been a clue that that was Jesus, until they saw his wounded scars, they couldn't believe. Of course, Thomas had to see them too. They had. Why not Thomas? Isn't this always the case in relationships? You don't really know someone, you don't really come to love them deeply until they reveal to you their scars, their wounds, their vulnerabilities. When someone reveals their physical and emotional scars, then you then have a deeper sense. Who they are, where they've come from. A friend of mine way back was dating who would become his wife, and it probably the fourth or fifth day they, he shared with me, she said, I need to tell you something. He braced himself. Okay, what? She said, I have some phobias about things. Okay, uh, like what? He asked, Well, flying mostly and heights, and sometimes I've, I'm phobic around people. Sometimes, no, all the time, I'm phobic about wooden spoons. Wooden spoons, he asked. Why wooden spoons? It's a long, sordid story, she said, but it goes back to an issue of abuse when I was young. At that point, he shared with me that their relationship went to a much deeper level when she shared with him her most vulnerable and deepest woundedness. True friendship is this way, of course. As you share life, you also share the broken parts of it and the wounds that make it up. Your fears and anxieties, your struggles, without which there is no true relationship. Upon the scars of life, our relationships are built. So in whatever kind of body it was that Jesus came back, And whatever kind of body it was that Jesus was raised up out of that grave, a body that apparently was able to walk through locked doors while at the same time eat fish and bread, it was a body that clearly displayed his wounds, his hand nail holes and the scar in his side. His suffering, that is what it took for the disciples to, to understand who he was. They're not always the brightest crayons in the box, those disciples, but they knew this much. No nail holes, no Jesus. The fact about Jesus is that through his passion and suffering, he is always most recognized. And this is the most difficult parts about our faith, For most of us, usually when we are early Christians, we would like to think that if we follow Jesus, we can go unscathed and unwounded through life. With enough faith, we will be able to avoid the hurt and the loss and the hardship and and, and the fear that follows. Two large Catholic parishes located in the same Midwestern town in the same neighborhood One was struggling, the other was growing. The bishop wanted to know why, so he studied. They both had basically the same programming. As I said, they had the same facilities, generally, the same parking, the same access. The one that was struggling was sent probably the best bishop in the, uh, excuse me, the priest in the diocese, yet that did nothing to increase its growth. So he decided to do a survey And what he got back, mostly from the young people, was this. In the shrinking congregation, there was an old-fashioned crucifix with a quite realistic Christ nailed to a wooden cross in the very front. In the other church that was growing, there was an open contemporary decorative cross rather than the crucifix. When questioned, the young parents explained that they did not want their children to be troubled by the image of a crucified and suffering Jesus. We see this more and more these days, especially in prosperity churches where we want things sanitized, no conflicts between faith and politics, no confrontations about the human condition, no struggle or ambiguity or even doubt in our faith, Just keep things nice and tidy and straight and simple and provide a good and wholesome family atmosphere. But you know what? Life happens. Stuff happens. And suffering and hardship come inevitably, leaving us bereft of why it seems that Jesus abandoned us. Look at this passage. There is no resurrected Jesus who is not also the crucified Jesus. When we discover this, we soon learn that suffering is unavoidable and that in Jesus' own suffering, we find true solace and solidarity with God. In fact, it was Peter who said, in his wounds, Through his wounds we are healed. No nail holes. No Jesus. That is why we gather at the table, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever we call it. And what we say there is that here the body is broken and the blood is spilled out. And what we say is that that broken body and that blood spilled out, is transformed by the mercy and grace of God into the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Here at this table, Christ's presence becomes real to us through his suffering and through God's transformation of that suffering, the cross and the crucifixion, into the greatest symbol of human salvation in history. It is at this table that we practice owning up to and seeing our suffering, the suffering of others, and especially the suffering of God for us. And it is at this table that we hear Christ's words, Peace even still be with you. Hopefully at this table we can see what the disciples saw. That God takes our woundedness, our stripes, our brokenness and transforms it into something unbelievably redemptive and new. But it will not normally happen if we try to avoid the hard and sometimes messy parts of life. We must be willing... to look at the nail holes and to see the scars. We must not be blind and in denial until it is too late. Suffering and death and the dark side of life is part of it. And as we understand our faith and view that suffering and death, we see there the very presence of the risen Lord, the wounded presence of the risen Lord, who stands out and reaches for us with scars on his hands. We don't seek it. I mean, you have to be a masochist to seek it. It, however, will find us eventually. Plenty of it. We just need to remember this story about how the resurrected Jesus comes as the suffering Jesus and, and how that suffering is redeemed. It's strange that in the midst of suffering and death and grief, we have these, these new eyes, this new way of perceiving life. It's like a window or a door is opened, like that lovely Emily Dickinson poem, By a departing light, we see acuter quite than by a wick that stays, the candle wick, than than by the light that stays. There's something in the flight that clarifies the light and decks the rays, orders them. And this is so true. In the midst of loss and grief, you are able to see more clearly the truth and reality of that one you've lost than you did before when the veil of life kept you from seeing them in their and your busyness. Some of you knew Gordon and Susan Respis. they were members here for many years. He was diagnosed with. Uh, a hard cancer and decided that he wanted to move back to the North Georgia mountains where he would end his his days. He died last Maundy Thursday. Susan wrote me about that experience and I asked her if I could share it with the congregation and she wrote, I don't mind you telling it I don't know if this happens to a lot of people, but it was quite astounding to us, really, to me, a miracle, God's work. During the vigil we kept in mid-morning Thursday, I told my son Gordon Jr. to tell his dad that his sons would take care of the home place and take care of me, that there was nothing to worry about. Gordon could still talk to us then, and he told Gordon Jr. I could not have had better sons. The hospice crew came in and gave him morphine to ease his labored breathing, and that was the end of any conscious state. All through the afternoon, Gordon was pretty much comatose, eyes closed, unresponsive to us, to anything. About 6 p.m. Thursday, I saw him noiselessly responding to something, mouthing just a couple of words, but no sound, Throughout, I was by his side, washing his face and hands at intervals, adjusting oxygen, talking to him, keeping his lips moist, telling him he could go home. But no response. About 6 p.m., his eyes still closed, he did a few I understand nods of his head, exactly as though responding to something told to him. Still, though, no response to us. During the next hour, his eyes opened clearly focused on something above him that we could not see, and his face was clear and alert and beautifully happy. Then he sank back into the comatose, unresponsive state. At brief intervals, he again opened his eyes, happy, focused, and raised his arms to be pulled up, only to go back to his pillow and display a gentle, disappointed expression, totally unaware of us. This happened half a dozen times, his arms lifting, his face happy. We were so concerned that he couldn't make it, his frustration, that my son and I even helped him raise up the next time he focused on the unseen above him, and he tried to either reach them or raise his arms to be lifted. Each time he sank back in disappointment, eyes closing again, and I kept wondering why it wasn't time. Then shortly before 8 p.m., I washed his face and hands once more and saw and felt him moving his face against the warm washcloth in appreciation. He is responding to this, I told my son, the first response in eight hours. And then he left us. It's hard to describe his face when he became alert each of those times. Radiance, joy, peace, all of it. Later that night, Gordon appeared to my brother in a dream. I had not talked to my brother, but had my daughter-in-law call him to tell him Gordon had died. My brother lives in North Carolina. In the dream, my brother Dick said he couldn't understand why he was seeing Gordon because he had just been told Gordon had died. He tried to tell others around him that Gordon was there, but no one else could see Gordon. He said to the others in the dream, but they just simply walked away across the room in a house to get something to eat. Gordon stopped squarely in front of him and hugged him and thanked him for all the years he'd had with his sister. My brother said Gordon's face was giddy with happiness. An old church sexton was walking by the secretary's office the week before Christmas as she was putting together the Easter bulletin. He picked it up and looked at the picture up front Threw it down on her desk and said, "Nope." What do you mean, "Nope"? The sexton said, "Nope, it won't work." I mean, the secretary said, "What do you mean?" The sexton said, "Nope, it won't work." Why not? The preacher gave me this picture to put on the bulletin," sexter said. Sexton said, "Look at it. No nail holes. No Jesus."